Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. Is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have had so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Pau Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. Got a great guest lined up for you this week. Val Ackerman, the commissioner of the Big East Conference. She's the founding president of the WNBA. She was there when they started in 1996. The first woman to serve as president of USA Basketball. She's a basketball Hall of Famer, really a trailblazing executive for women in sports. Uh, She worked with David Stern and Rick Welts and other guests who have appeared on this show and, you know, was there at the NBA League office in the heyday of the NBA back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. His, His work with some of the best executives in sports, and she herself is one of those. So I think you'll learn a lot from Val Ackerman on this week's edition of Sports Business Radio. I'm joined by Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing good. And yeah, I learned a lot listening to the Val interview because she's just kind of an OG. She's been around for a while and has served some major roles. I like how you guys talked about David Stern and both your connection with him. But uh, yeah, she, uh, man, she does a lot of, a lot of good stuff and knows a lot of people and knows how to lead. So it's a, it's a fun conversation. All right. Before we get to that interview, let's discuss some headlines. Um, number one, the best news that we could have hoped for when we did the show last week, DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills is back in Buffalo. He's still hospitalized but he's back in Buffalo. What an amazing week of recovery for him. You can't say enough about the medical staff with the Bills, with the Cincinnati Bengals, the team at University of Cincinnati. Um, What they've done with him and the care that they've given to him has allowed him to, uh, you know, regain his neurological capabilities. And, um, you know, he's able to walk. They they did all the things that they needed to do in order to pull off what looks like a miraculous recovery for him. So what great news, Griggs. Yeah, man, what a week. I mean, I was glued to that Buffalo Bills game on Sunday just because I had to see how it was going to happen and the, the tributes and the fans. And then the opening kickoff return, I was like bawling. I mean, I was chills. It was just absolutely amazing. I mean, what a week for the NFL. I thought the tributes were awesome. I thought the route, you know, the applause instead of a moment of silence, it was a applause. Let's get this guy pumped up and uh, him tweeting from his hospital bed. I mean, wow, it was just a, what a cool week that, you know, a week before we're in the depths and everybody's worried sick. And then a week later, here we are, you know, enjoying his life and his recovery. So that was awesome. And kudos to the bills for many things. But one thing that I particularly took note of is you know, they introduced the medical staff and the trainers before Sunday's game on the field. So you know, they really put the spotlight on them, recognize them, 
know, those are people who rarely are recognized publicly for the good work that they do. So um, it was really great that the Bills did that. And like you said, what an emotional game. You know, the Bills are in the playoffs now. By the way, DeMar Hamlin's uh, foundation, the fundraising efforts that we told you about last week, they're now up over $8 million. So, you know, people have rallied around DeMar Hamlin. There's a lot of good being done in the world. And, you know, most importantly, it's great to see him uh, active and alert and, you know, looking like he's on the road to recovery. Yeah, I think his opening goal for that GoFundMe was 2500 bucks for the kids, and now it's over $8 million. I mean, that's got to be, when he heard that, I would have loved to see his reaction because uh, that's just fascinating. And and yeah, there's good. Humanity is good. People are good when they come together like this, and that's that's fun to see. And I love how you mentioned, too, the uh, the game ball was given to the guy that administered CPR first. Uh, how cool is that? I mean, that's, that's another chill moment. Yeah, well-deserved. Um, all right, the other headline we wanted to talk about is that Georgia, the Bulldog, Dogs won the college football national championship, the biggest margin of victory in a bowl game ever, 65 to 7 over TCU. Uh, Griggs, this was a route. I would imagine the TV ratings are going to be pretty dismal. It was already a pretty regional matchup. And, you know, Georgia put it on them early and often. And, you know, I would imagine not many people were sticking around to see the end of that one unless you were a diehard Georgia Bulldogs football fan. Yeah, I think uh, 55 unanswered points, too, is the most in a national title game, too. Lots of records beat uh, last night. And yeah, I mean, it was just it was a classic blowout. I (laughs) I was texting with you and our photographer, Brad Kinzer, and saying, let's put them in the NFL playoffs. I mean, it looks like they're that good. They could play against, you know, put them up against anybody. Let's see what happens, because they were just on point from the get go. And uh, it was a route. I did enjoy the mega cast. I went over and watched the uh, sky view for a while, which was kind of cool. They didn't have any play by play. So you got to hear the sounds of the field and the bands and the crowd and the whistles and the quarterback clapping his hands. And that was kind of fun. So I did enjoy the mega cast and uh, I bounced around through the ESPN networks. All right. Interesting note here. Not a lot of people know this, but back in 1988, Miami Heat president, Pat Riley, then with the Lakers, trademarked the phrase three-peat. So now anyone going for three titles in a row has to go through Pat Riley in order to use that phrase on (laughs) merchandise or anywhere. So the Georgia Bulldogs are going for three national championships in a row. And if they want to use the phrase three-peat, they've got to get permission from Pat Riley. He will get royalties from everything. So that's a big victory for Pat Riley, potentially, as well. The Georgia Bulldogs going for the three-peat. See, this is why we uh, we encourage you to tune into Sports Business Radio. You get tips and little tidbits like that that you'd never know. I mean, that is, uh, that's awesome. And he could... Uh... He's a smart guy. We we love him. We love what he's done with Miami and other teams. And <laughs> man, he could make a killing on that because you can already see the shirts, you know, in the stands, you know, hashtag three Pete or whatever it is. That's uh, that'll be fun to watch that story. Yeah. All right. Before we get to the interview with Val Ackerman of the Big East Conference, um, I was in Maui and I went to a PGA Tour event my, my first time in a few years. And I was really interested to see the event up close, especially because the last time I went to a PGA Tour event, the Live Tour was not in existence. So there was no competition for the PGA Tour. They've really had a monopoly for many, many years on the pro golf circuit for the men. Um, It was interesting what I found, Griggs. Let's just say that things haven't changed that much. You would think when there's competition, um, you know, things would change. So yes, they've upped the prize money. Um, Yes, they've 
you know, done some things to incentivize the players to remain on the PGA tour versus hopping over to the live tour, like many players did. But here are some things that I found. So, you know, last year we heard about this player impact program and Tiger Woods was bonus $15 million and other golfers were bonus for generating positive media and social media coverage for the PGA tour. So I was like, wow, okay, I'm on Maui. Um, this is an event where there's not a ton of media because it's expensive to get from the mainland to Maui and stay here for a week. And, you know, I was like, I bet you the access to the players is, is going to be pretty good. So like I would do for any other event I'm covering, I put in a request with the PR people. Hey, you know, I'd like to talk to a player or even an executive about the upcoming PJ tour season and, you know, just have other general questions. Um, you know, I put my request in, it wasn't a full week in advance, but it was enough time, you know, before the tournament started. Um, you know, I saw how busy or not busy the players were when they were here. Um, 39 players in the field at the Century Tournament of Champions. Not one could take the time to participate in an interview. Not one PGA Tour executive had a chance to sit down with me and talk about the upcoming season. And remember, you've got competition now with the Live Tour. So you should be promoting, hey, this is what we're doing. This is the changes we've made. This is how things are different. This is why the PGA Tour is still the best golf tour on the planet. Nobody. So I happened to be walking the course for the Pro-Am on Wednesday, and I chit-chatted with a few people, including the father of one of the golfers. And I'm not going to name the golfer because I don't want to get him in trouble. And I said to the father of the golfer, hey, out of curiosity, what do you think of the player impact program? And he said, well, I think it's great. You know, Tiger deserves that money. When Tiger's generating positive publicity for the tour, you know, we all win. And I said, does your son ever get approached by the PGA Tour PR people about doing interviews? Because, I mean, look, you literally have money at stake now with this player impact program. If you generate positive media and social media coverage for the tour, that gets factored into your bonus at the end of the year. This is, this is money available for you. Well, what I found is the PGA Tour never actually came to this player and said, hey, Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio would like to speak with you. That could have been an opportunity for positive publicity for the tour. I wasn't going to do a, a negative or controversial interview with the player. But what happens, and it happens a lot in sports, is the PR people don't want to bother the players. Or in this case, oh, these are individual contractors, so we're not going to bother them with the media request. So the way that the, the PGA Tour players did media throughout the week is a couple of them were available via press conference before the tournament started. And then at the end of the round, you know, they'd stand on the first tee box. And if you wanted to do a pool interview, which is multiple reporters interviewing one player at one time, um, you could do that. But there was no opportunity for one-on-one -on -one interviews. And anyone listening to the show knows that's what we do. You know, we're not interested in press conference sound or pool interviews. We want one-on-one -on -one interviews. So after connecting some dots here and talking to some people, what I've learned is 
even though you have this player impact program and you've got bonuses available to the players for generating positive media and social media coverage, the opportunities like the one I presented are not always brought to the players. That's not good because the players are missing out on opportunities to promote the sport. And I've said this for a long time. You know, you look at like the 10th guy on the NBA bench. We know about him. We know what he's doing on social media. We know the video games he likes. We know what his family looks like. We know a lot about the 10th guy on the bench on an NBA team. We don't know much about Major League Baseball players. I couldn't tell you five things about Mike Trout, and he's one of the best players in baseball. I couldn't tell you five things about John Rahm, who just won the Century Tournament of Champions and is one of the best golfers in the world. Justin Thomas was there. Jordan Spieth was there. And, you know, I see them interacting with the fans and they look like great guys. Why not give them the opportunity to promote themselves, humanize themselves, tell the stories of the tour more? They keep all these golfers at an arm's length and we don't get to know them. And then they wonder, why don't we have better TV ratings? Why isn't there more interest in golf? Why are players like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka and Bryce Bryson DeChambeau leaving our tour to go to the live tour. These are problems for the PGA tour, Gregs. If they're going to continue to attract fans to their sport, we need to know who these players are a little bit. I mean, we don't need to know everything about them. And when I present an opportunity for the fans to get to know these players a little bit, and you know, they have lots of things going on off the golf course and the PGA tour who has incentivized them to generate positive media and social media doesn't even bring them the request. That's bad for the players. And I don't even know if the players know that this is going on. You know, I'm sure a lot of them, your top players, they don't care. They can get word out whenever they want, but some of the middle to lower tier players, if they have an opportunity to make a few million dollars at the end of the year via this player impact program, and you're depriving them of that opportunity because you're not bringing them media requests, shame on the PJ tour. The other thing um, that I found really interesting with the tour is how they treat the volunteers. You know, I've been around a lot of events. I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers. I know the dirty little secret in sports is event organizers. They want to save money. And what's the easiest, fastest way to save money? Instead of paying an employee to do a job, you have volunteers. I mean, this happens at the Super Bowl. It happens at the Indy 500. It happens at golf tournaments. You have lots of volunteers. You're saving lots of money from not paying employees to do those jobs. You're asking volunteers to work long hours. You're putting them in situations where they've got to be front-facing and deal with crowds who may be going into areas they shouldn't be going into. And I was really surprised at, uh, I guess, the lack of thank yous from the PGA Tour, um, the sponsor, you know, okay, if you get like a little lunchbox or you get a little bag or you get a, you know, here's uh, $20 off your appetizer at the restaurant and you've been working a full week and you've been making this tournament what it was. And especially the returning volunteers who have been coming year after year after year, nothing's done to recognize them or to single them out or to thank them. Do you think it motivates the volunteers to want to come back the next year? No, of course not. So Take better care of the volunteers. Do nicer things for them. Recognize them. You know, I've always said in business, take care of the people that take care of you. 
And, you know, Griggs, I've always tried to take care of you. And Brad Kinzer, our photographer, who you just mentioned, and anyone who's working sports PR Summit, you do the little things. You show the appreciation. You make sure the accommodations are good. You make sure people get paid on time. You know, all of those things in order to keep them happy. Because when you find good people, you want to retain those people. But with the volunteers, a lot of them at these events are treated as afterthoughts. Oh, if they go away or don't come back the next year, we'll just find more volunteers somewhere else. Mm, you're losing knowledge. You're losing someone who volunteered and wanted to be part of your event in the first place. And I was disappointed to see how the volunteers were treated. It's not like they were treated, uh, you know, they weren't abused. But they could have been treated much better and thanked more. And, you know, you've got the sponsor involved on this with Sentry. You know, why aren't there more things being done? I mean, heck, take the money you're saving from not paying employees and put that towards doing some things for the volunteers. So, you know, a little bit disappointed with what I saw from the PGA Tour uh, in Maui. The golf was great. The course is great. Um, the weather was great. You know, really interesting ending with Colin Morikawa collapsing, essentially, and John Rom coming from behind to shoot a 10 under 63 on the last day. It was an exciting tournament. I got to see Ken Griffey Jr. in the Pro-Am, Chris Berman. You know, it was fun. But um, come on, PGA Tour, do better. Be better with the player impact program. Actually take requests to the players. Make your executives available for one-on-one -on -one interviews to promote your sport and your tour, especially when you've got the live tour who is now giving you competition and you know, you don't, you're not the only game in town anymore. So um, that's my rant on the PGA tour Griggs. You know, again, I've got many years background as the host of the show for 19 years. I've worked in sports. I'm the founder of the sports PR summit. So when I see PR people basically not wanting to waste a favor and take a request to any one of the 39 players in the field. It's not like I said, all right, give me John Romer bust. Give me Jordan Spieth or bust. Give me Justin Thomas or bust. Give me anyone, any one of the 39 players in the field. And by the way, no offense to anyone in the field, but there were some players in the field that I'd never heard of before. Um, so you're telling me those guys don't want to get their names out there a little bit and promote what they're doing and, and try and elevate you know, the awareness about who they are and, and you know, the fact that they're newer to the tour and, and what they're doing, you're depriving those golfers of that opportunity. And, you know, I've had owners on this show. I've had very important people on this show in the last 19 years, and you couldn't find one executive. It's not like I said, get me the commissioner, get me the president. I said, anyone from the PGA tour who can discuss the upcoming season, not one person made it available. So, that's not how you promote your sport. It's not how you promote your tour. And, um, you know, I just wanted to get that off my chest before we get to the interview with Val Ackerman, who, you know, like I said earlier, is one of the, the great trailblazing executives in sports in the last uh, 40 years. Griggs, thoughts? Yeah, it's a great rant. And it's, uh, it's a disconnect. You know, I think leave it to the player to make the choice. You know, the PR people have to get those requests to them. Let them make the choice. If they don't want to talk to you or don't want to talk to whoever, then it's on them. But the PR people, that's the disconnect. They're not doing what they need to be doing. That's the, the job of a PR person is to give your client these opportunities. And like you mentioned, half that, that uh, you know, crew on the, on, the, 
on the course, nobody knows. You know, it's not all all stars. It's not all these big names. Like, why would they not want to come on? We've had Bubba a couple times, and he loves it. We have great shows with him. Uh, I think uh, there's just some disconnects there, and, and it's it's sad to hear about the volunteers too, because those volunteers are going to leave with a distaste against the PGA Tour, and probably not going to want to come back. When all you got to do is just give them something simple. You know, give them some free food, give them something there, give them something that shows, hey, we are happy you're here, and you traveled to Hawaii to do this. So I think uh, I think you bring up great points, and now with the competition of the Live Tour. I mean, PGA's got to bring it up. They just got to bring it up. It's not, they're not the NFL and uh, they're going to keep losing momentum as the live t- tour keeps growing if they don't uh, promote these guys. One more thing that the PGA tour does that I thought was interesting and, and it's so old fashioned. Um, if you are a fan and you take a clip or you're a media member and you take a clip and it's 10 seconds and you put it out on social media, the PGA tour will ask you to take it down. This didn't happen to me, but it happened to someone else. This clip, got almost 2 million views. So that's promoting the tour. It's promoting the golfer who was in the clip. It's promoting awareness of the tournament. You might want to get to your TV and watch this. Wow, look at those beautiful views from Maui. They tell the reporter to take the clip down. Now, I understand protecting your broadcast partners and not wanting someone to put a recording of the whole tournament on there or even you know 10 minutes of something because now your broadcast partners come to you and say, hey, look, you're undermining people coming to our media outlet to watch the coverage. But a one-minute clip or a 30-second clip or a 15-second clip, you're going to ask people to take that down? I mean, how many times, Griggs, have we seen buzzer beaters in the NBA or a great catch in the NFL or a great something at a college sports event? And there's a clip of it on social media, and it goes viral. And it wasn't shot by the media photographer. It was shot by a fan. But what it does is it goes viral and it promotes interest for the sport. So when I saw that the PGA Tour is asking someone to take a clip down that had almost 2 million views on it, and you know they're doing this to protect their broadcast partner, I thought, is this the 1980s here? Like, what are we doing? Like, let people share content from the tournament. You're not the NFL. You're not the NBA. You're the PGA Tour. And unless it's the Masters, you are trying to get as many eyeballs to your sport and your venue as possible. So, you know, long story short, in a lot of ways, the PGA Tour still operates like it's the 1980s. They need to come in touch with reality and current times. Uh, You know, there's a lot of bad things you can say about the Live Tour and where the money comes from. But one of the things they're doing is they're pushing the envelope and they're doing things differently. And they're making their players more accessible and they're making the sport more accessible and they're doing things like wearing shorts and, you know, they're, they're trying different things. If the PGA tour is going to be stuck in the past, who knows, you know, what's going to become of the tour, but that, that broadcast clip thing, I just thought that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, and you see it even on NBA promos, they'll use some of these fan videos in the promos because they're so cool. The courtside shot, you know, down the field, looking at the touchdown catch. I mean, that's, that's what makes social media fun is seeing these clips from people that are there and you're like, oh, I got to get to a game. This is too cool. I got to see a buzzer beater. I got to see a game winning touchdown or a field goal. I mean, that's just a no brainer. You got to let these fans promote your stuff. And uh, I can't believe they made them take it down. That is shocking. Well, and look, golf is kind of looked at as an elitist sport anyways. I like golf. I play golf. Um, you know, like you said, we've had Bubba Watson, Jack Nicholas. We've had golfers on this show. Um, so it's not like I'm here to, uh, you know, criticize 
golf. But what the PGA Tour is doing, they need to get with the current times. They just, you know, are behind the times. And I think they're going to continue to be pushed by live and frankly, other sports. And they're going to become less and less relevant unless they get their players out there more and actually take interview requests to them so that they can promote the sport. Let people share little clips on social media without demanding that they take them down. Get in touch with today's world PGA Tour because you're operating like it's the 1980s. Yeah, it's time to step it up and it's visibly showing that they're stuck in 1980. And and like you said, it's it's not the NBA, it's not the NFL. They've got to do stuff to help promote this. And when you've got fans taking videos helping you promote for free, like that's a no-brainer. Keep it going. And get these get these uh players, you know, on interviews. It, it's funny. You don't see players on any podcast. You don't see them on any interviews. Like PGA players are just gone. You don't see them unless it's a press conference after a match. That's about all you see and that's not right. Coming up next, Val Ackerman, the commissioner of the Big East Conference. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. When it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash SBR. That's insidetracker.com forward slash SBR. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Val Ackerman. She is the commissioner of the Big East Conference. She's the founding president of the WNBA first woman to serve as president of USA Basketball. She's a basketball Hall of Famer. Val, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. I've wanted to have you on for a long time, and uh, it's an honor to have you on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So thanks for having me. All right, let's start off with your grandfather and your father were involved in athletics. How did that shape your career? Because you were a pretty elite high school and college basketball player yourself. Well, the answer is, um, you know, a lot, a lot. I think, you know, we're often um, influenced um, by the activities or, or endeavors or professional avocations of our of our parents. And that was certainly the case with me. My my dad was a, a high school athletics director who played a lot of sports when he was growing up and successfully. So he was a great all around athlete. And uh, and so he was really my hero. And someone I, you know, I've tried to emulate in many ways. My grandfather, his father, was also an AD and had played sports and had coached and sort of done that whole, you know, had sort of gone from, you know, spot to spot. So that was sort of, uh, you know, made a big impression on me also. So, you know, that uh, I thought at one point I'd be an AD also, and I've never got to be in that role. But being a commissioner has been pretty close. 
in many respects. And I do credit them for, you know, inspiring in me the um, my interest in working in sports as a career. Let's go back to the late 1980s, early 90s. You're working in the NBA league office in New York with our late great friend, David Stern, who was the commissioner at the time. Uh, Rick Welts was also in the league office. Some really amazing sports executives came out of that time and in that office. You were a staff attorney. What was that like? What was the period of time like? What did you learn from working there at that time? Well, I'm I'm very you know fortunate because I I was at um, had a chance to work at the NBA for 16 years. I started out when David was in his fourth year as commissioner, and my um, journey took me to both the men's side of basketball, including as as his chief of staff, and then later as the first president of the WNBA. Which really we can you know anybody who cares about that league should credit David for making that league a go. And I learned so much from working um, at David's side. He was uh, a brilliant guy. You know him, Brian, she said. Brilliant guy, could sort of like look around corners, mm. if you will, and uh, really, you know, sort of understand what was coming next in the sports world, whether it was international or technology or the importance of women to the game of basketball. He he just sort of got, he got that. And the league that he built was really very nimble in the early years. So we were just sort of very entrepreneurial and most everything was a go and give it a try. And the bureaucracy that you see among many sports organizations was absent in the early years that I was at the NBA, which made it really fun. And um, so I came up as a lawyer to be, to, to begin with, um, started out as a staff attorney, was hired by Gary Bettman, who was then the general counsel of the NBA. Now, of course, the commissioner of the NHL. So I started out in the legal department and then I moved over to the commissioner's office and then eventually landed with the WNBA. So to be able to learn from people like Russ Granick, Deputy Commissioner, Rick Welts, who you mentioned, Chief Marketing Officer at that time, so many others, I can't, I can't list them all, was, it, it, it made for very robust formative years for me working in um, pro sports. And you know, a lot of what I do today, frankly, sort of harkens me back to what I learned from David, Rick, Russ, and others when I was on the job. Uh, many years ago at the league. So it's interesting to me, you were an attorney. David was an attorney. Adam Silver was an attorney. Gary Batman was an attorney. What is it about being an attorney that helps be a commissioner as well? It does help. And uh, while I haven't practiced like law in a long time, uh, it's still very handy <laughs> when I have to think about an issue or try to tackle a problem. Um, I think some of it is you know, there's risk, there's legal risk um, in, in a number of the areas that one sort of finds oneself when you're operating in the sports environment. Um, so to have a handle on sort of how to ask the right questions about risk assessment, um, in my, you know, my case, I think for others, other lawyers in this business sort of stems back to that legal training. Um, precedents matter. So, you know, a good example might be a disciplinary matter. It's really helpful to be able to say, okay, we have this situation where we might have to impose a, you know, a discipline, a penalty or a sanction. Have we ever had this before? And if so, what did we do then? Because you have to, you know, prove that you're fair. Uh, if you have a similar fact set, you want to handle it if you can in the same way. So there's no sense of unfairness in terms of how you meted out a, a punishment, for example. 
So precedents really go at the core of, you know, legal of legal training. And then the last piece I'd say is when you go to law school, you really, there's a work ethic involved with getting through law school in one piece. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just grinding, you know, you have to be ready for every exam. You have to be ready, frankly, for every class in case you get called on by the professor. You don't want to embarrass yourself. Um, it's a Socratic method, of course. And so you really get into this mindset of preparation and sometimes over-preparation for um, a meeting or for some situation that you're in. And so, you know, that's, you know, a lot of what I, how I've sort of built my, you know, my work, you know, my way of doing things is just being really ready for as, as much as I can, as much as time will permit. And, and I think that, again, that, pre- that level of preparation and that mindset of being prepared, again, uh, dates back to my days as a, as a law student. Yeah, that's great insight. The NBA has offices all over the world now. When you were working there, how many people were in the league office? Well, when I started, there were under 100. I think wow. I was in plea number 98. Oh, yeah. That was in 1988, 34 years ago. And then David doubled the company the next year and doubled it again the year after. So he he grew it pretty quickly to 500, as I remember. And then it's, you know, it's grown since then, added international offices. But it was really a very special time to be at the league when it was under 100. Because we were on a floor and a half. David would walk the halls, put his head into your office, say, what are you working on? He was sort of like a micromanager. <laughs> so he wanted to know what everybody else was doing. And you're like, you know, go be the CEO. You know, go back to your office and be strategic and let us do our, let us do our jobs. But you know, it was a really a fun time. And the league, as I said, grew quickly and um, the business took off with the first dream team, for example, and what that meant for the NBA's international growth. And then, of course, you know, um, technology endeavors and and the start of the WNBA were also very, very um, exciting, and, you know, to be a part of. And so I was very fortunate to be on the ground floor of a lot of that. So walk us through that conversation when David approaches you, I'm assuming, and says, hey, Val, we need you to lead this operation, the WNBA. We're starting a women's basketball league. How does that conversation take place and how does that get off the ground? Well, really, it didn't happen that abruptly. Brian, it wasn't sort of dropped out of the sky. There was a run up to the launch of the league. We um, sort of I'll pick up on my comment about USA Basketball you know, you'll to take a, a long history lesson and shrink it. The NBA um, was very involved in the first um, dream team, if you will. The first time that NBA players played in the Olympics in Barcelona was in 1992. And the NBA, because of that decision by FIBA, the International Federation, uh, the NBA had to work very closely with USA Basketball with all the details that went into fielding that team, not just operationally, but commercially and dealing with the U.S. Olympic Committee and FIBA and other entities. And so we had this foundation of working with USA Basketball on the men's side that led to supporting USA Basketball on the women's side in advance of the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. Uh, For that Olympics, USA Basketball, with the NBA support, put together a team of players that traveled for 10 months before the Games and trained and toured. And that really was our way at the NBA of testing the waters to determine if there was interest in the highest levels of women's basketball that we could parlay into a league. And I was very involved in that effort, um, in that tour of that team. ESPN actually did a documentary on that team called Dream On, 
three-part documentary that aired last June in connection with um, some Title IX films that ESPN had produced. So I recommend strongly to your listeners and, and viewers take a, you know check that out. It was really a very interesting story of how we brought that team together and what their journey was over that 10, 12-month period. So anyway, we were sort of in the women's basketball business through that team in 95, 96, and I was spearheading that for the league. And so as that team was unfolding, we were in the back room sort of quietly putting together a business plan for a WNBA that would launch the following summer in 97. And I was very involved in that as well. So the answer to your question is when David and Russ got around to asking me, hey, you know, we need, would you be interested? Um, I think in with all modesty, I was sort of the natural <laughs> because I'd been working on the national team endeavor. I was a you know women's basketball person of sorts because of my playing career. And um, so it wasn't a surprise that they asked me, but it was an honor, a tremendous honor that they asked me to do it. And I had to confer with my husband, Charlie. We had young children at that time. It was clear it was going to be a lot of work. My husband was amazing and said, I'm supportive. I'm supportive, um, which made it happen. And so that was that was it. And the rest, I guess you could say, sort of became history here as then we then took off and did the planning and, you know, the league became a reality, as I said, in the summer of 97. When you look back all these years later and see what the WNBA has become, I would imagine you have a great amount of pride knowing that, you know, again, you were part of the, the early days. No, no question. I mean, um, it's, it's sometimes strange, to be honest, because I was so deeply involved in the league. Um, you know, uh, in its formative years, its infancy. And now it's, I don't know, it's, I think it's past being a teenager, it's whatever, 26, 27 years later. So it's, it's more advanced in terms of its longevity and what it's accomplished. And I'm, you know, I've been gone a while. So um, I'm, I'm more of a, very much a, a, an observer at this point, but I do have very, very vivid memories, um, very strong emotional and vivid memories of those early years and what it took to get the league off the ground and what the, you know, frankly, how hard it was to deal with the naysayers at that time, because people were not ready. 26, we were ahead of our time, I think in some ways. So we had to deal with this notion that people just really weren't ready for a women's pro basketball league and the ways they are now. And you're seeing that in the embrace of other sports now and in the embrace of the WNBA now in ways that weren't possible a generation ago. But it is great to see, you know, see the traction and the players are remarkable. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the biggest cheerleader here. I hope they continue to build and, you know, become what the NBA became on the men's side. That would be the ultimate goal. I hope that happens. It feels like we've come a long way with women's sports. You see the growth of the WNBA, the growth of the NWSL, but there's still a long way to go. There's you know, not nearly as much investment in women's sports as there is in men's sports. What needs to happen for women's sports to continue to grow in this country? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I define the connection between women's sports in a couple of ways, and they all have a pathway, I think, to do more, do better. One is participation, which Title IX opened the doors on that now 50 years ago. And it's, night and day, how many more women and girls play sports, including at the high school and collegiate levels, thanks to Title IX. 
And, you know, I, I hope, you know, for me growing up as a young girl in New Jersey in the 60s, opportunities to play sports weren't that plentiful. And now they are for young girls. So that to me is progress. But can it, can we make it more plentiful? Sure. Can we do more at the high school and collegiate level? I'm, sh- I'm sure we can. So for me, you know, that's just competent leadership, the force of federal law, you know, resource deployment thoughtfully and, you know, competently. We'll, we'll get there. That's participation. Number two is women as fans. I mean, we're seeing now every major sports organization has to recognize the importance of women in its fan demographic. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing more efforts, you know, made around building that. I think for women's sports at the elite level, building the fan base is critically important. That's how those sports are going to grow revenues by getting more fans who are dipping into their you know, wallets to buy tickets, who are watching games on TV, which drives up viewership. And that gets advertisers interested and that gets networks interested. And that's where the money comes from at the end of the day. So, so building fan support. Women fans and fan support generally for women's sports, I think, is important. Um, and then, you know, the last two pieces for me are building these pro leagues, WNBA, NWSL. Maybe someday there'll be a WNHL, women's pro volleyball, you name it. Um, you know, we, we're more in the infant stages, adolescent stages with the women's pro leagues than we see on the men's side where the leagues are very mature. So building those elite platforms, Olympics, high end of college sports, et cetera, is a to-do. And then last but not least, and this, you know, really resonates with me, is women as leaders. I mean, when I was coming up, there were no women that I had to look up to working mm. at the NBA. I mean, they, I had great mentors in David and Russ and, and Rick and others, but I didn't have like female role models who were executives. And that was really, you know, when I was bringing kids, you know, when I had my kids, when I was at the league, that was... I was really on a solitary journey. There was nobody I could say, hey, how do I do this job and have children at home? I had to figure that out on my own. So now you've got more women, more women who are working mothers like myself. Um, But we need more women generally to lead sports organizations. And it'd be great if, you know, former athletes become leaders as I did, because we understand the ins and outs, ways that others might not. So that piece, the leadership piece and, and getting it to happen, not only domestically, but globally, I think is on my list of to do's. And it just, you know, it's going to be the passage of time. It's going to be good leadership to, you know, accelerate these, you know, these developments, keep them going. I think it's a combination of factors, but I'm optimistic. I I think we're, we made a lot of progress. We have work to do, but we're going to get, we're going to get to where we need to get to. How does it feel to you to be a mentor to so many? Like you said, you know, when you were in that league office, there weren't other women in the office and, and knowing that you could kind of look to as a mentor. You've been that for so many people. How does that feel to you? It's important to me. I mean, I, I don't, I, I do it because I feel like I need to do it. I mean, because it just, as you said, I didn't have that. I didn't have, you know, someone to call or, um, particularly on these, you know, these working mother, you know, challenges or, you know, sort of, okay, you're a woman working in a predominantly male profession. Like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, you know, what, what are some tips? on how to be effective in that environment. I mean, I didn't, I just had to figure it out on my own for the most part. So I do feel a responsibility to, um, to help any, any, you know, young woman or, or colleague who calls me and many do to say, how do I get into the business? What does it take to be successful? Can you give me some guidance on sort of, you know, how to get in the door? 
um, how to advance. I mean, I, I never say no when I get these inquiries. And again, because I, I didn't have it, I feel doubly responsible to make sure that the women who are going to take my place at some point, um, you know, we're all links in a chain and we all want to work a good shift while we're at it. So at some point, somebody's going to take over for me and I would like them to be, you know, as equipped as I have become and can take it to the next level. That's, that's my dream. That's great. Um, all right, let's talk about the Big East Conference. You're the commissioner. You've been there since 2013. You know, when I was growing up, it was Pat Ewing, it was Chris Mullen, it was Ed Pinckney. You know, I, I remember the early days of the uh, the Big East, and I've always looked at the conference as such a, a fan from afar. Um, you know, there have been lots of changes over your reign, and certainly since I was a kid. But, you know, where is the conference right now? I know, you know, basketball is the revenue driver. There is no more football. Um, how's the conference doing? How's the health of the conference? It's good. It's really good. I, I'm with you. I was a fan, too, of the old Big East. And I remember when the old Big East was breaking up 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, after a bunch of defections in the preceding half a dozen years. Uh, I was actually teaching a sports business class, sports management class at Columbia University, and we were using the breakup of the old Big East as a case study in my class. Wow. It was very ironic when they finally did it, they broke away, you know, and then had to find a commissioner that I was approached about that. It was just, it was just, you know, it was, it was incredible sort of sequence of events, you know, those, those memorable months. But, you know, we are now, um, thanks for the plug, giving me the chance to make the plug. We're now 10 years into the, what I call the new big East. We sponsor 22 sports, men's and women's basketball are our lead. We don't sponsor sponsor football, although we have a few schools that play football, we don't manage it for them. But, you know, we're based here in New York City, as you can see from my backdrop here, from early days of Providence in Providence, Rhode Island. And we're, you know, we are, you know, wholly committed to our athletes, the academic development of their, of them, their, you know, our schools call it the development of the whole person. We do a lot of activities to bring together the common missions of our schools outside of athletics. So we do work in mental health. We do work in diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, we're trying, we did our part with sort of title nine awareness last year. And so I think the conference right now is it's stable. It's in a very good position in terms of um, how relevant we are nationally in terms of the, you know, our competitive prospects. Um, we have very high graduation rates, second only to the Ivy league and the Patriot league in the big East. And, and, uh, um, you know, we're trying to be leader-like because college sports right now is going through an interesting time period. There's lots of challenges in front of the space. And we're trying very hard to do our part to make sure that college sports stay strong, as writ large, stay strong and healthy in the years to come. Because they, you know, they're, you know, we're in the people development business. That was me. I went to college on a basketball scholarship. I mean, I'm the person I am today because I was an athlete at my school. So many of us went through that experience, believe in it. And so we, you know, we want to make sure the college sports stays healthy and strong for the many athletes who sport, especially for the ones whose sports don't generate any revenue. Because I think given some of the changes that may be underfoot with college sports, those sports, those athletes could be vulnerable in the future because of how the economic, the reality of the economics in college sports. But it's been very exciting. And uh, Fox Sports has been a terrific television partner for us. I want to give them a lot of credit credit for bringing us to this point over 10 years. 
And I, I think the future of the conference remains very bright. We've seen NIL in the last year or so. Um, you know, you talk about changes afoot. What are some of those changes that you see coming? Well, it's, it remains to be seen, Brian, you know, where we go now a year and a half into NIL. Um, just to sort of remind everybody, NIL went live July of 21. There were sort of pressures from mo- many states on the NCAA's rules at that time, which did not allow for players to enter into endorsement deals that allowed them to basically sell their name, image, and likeness rights to companies in exchange for services that wasn't allowed. It is now the challenge. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's good NIL. The good part of NIL is that these opportunities exist, that it's not just the high profile men's basketball and football players, it's athletes in women's sports and Olympic sports that have the ability to make some money. Um, And it's educational. Because to do these endeavors, you got to be a little bit of a business person, mm-hmm. strike the right deal and to be thoughtful about, you know, how to manage your time because <laughs> you got to go to class and play your sport still to stay eligible. Got to go to class. So, you know, uh, the, there's been a learning experience, I think, for these endeavors. It's been a positive. The challenging part of NIL right now is there is no single standard in terms of how it's managed. Many states have laws that are vary from state to state that create some confusion. These endeavors are not supposed to be used as basically bribes to go to a particular school. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to be for nothing. You have to do real work to get the NIL money. It can't just be because you're the starting point guard on the basketball team. That's That's what we call pay for play. So sorting out you know, what I would call legitimate NIL from fraudulent NIL has been a work in progress for, you know, NCAA schools. And I don't know, you know, where that's headed. I mean, I, you know, it has to get sorted out. Whether Congress becomes involved in sorting it out is remains to be seen. Uh, Some think that that would be necessary to do the sorting. But you know, I don't have the crystal ball on where we're going to be in a year or two. But again, I think that's the balance right now is the good part of NIL and what it's done for income and education versus the more challenging compliance side of NIL that tries, you know, is intended to keep it a, a fair playing field and prevent undue harm to the athletes because of, you know, undue influences in the process who might not have their best interests at heart, how to manage those two that those two areas. Just a couple minutes left. Um, I think at some point you went to UCLA. So I've got to ask you, USC, UCLA, they move to the Big Ten. I'm a West Coaster. So I look at that and go, wait a minute. This is totally out of the norm from what I grew up with. Um, Are we going to see more seismic shifts in the college landscape ahead where people are, are going to the conferences that offer the most amount of money? Possibly. I mean, that's sort of what's happening now, if you stop to think about it. Um, and that's the right that every school has, frankly, to figure out what setup is the best, in, you know, in the best interests of that school long term. And some of that may be um, competitive. Some of it may be based on values and geography. And some of it, frankly, may be financial. It may just flat out be for the money. And so I, the answer to your question is yes, I don't think, I don't have the crystal ball here and I don't have inside information on any movements that I've heard about that are looming. 
But I, I do think that it's very possible that you could see other changes in configurations and, and, and with realignment. Um, I will note my observation is a lot of it is football driven. That's really the driving force, the engine on some of these moves because you know, if you stop to think about the travel that might be involved, if a, if, a, if a school is moving to a conference that's further away geographically, you know, football's one thing. If you're playing once a week and half the time you're at home, a cross-country trip may be manageable and is manageable. But if you're the volleyball team traveling two or three times a week, then long distances really are a factor. And in my, in my opinion, really need to be thought through completely, thoroughly by the participating schools. Yeah. Because that's, you know, that's you've got student athlete interest, missed class time, everything, you know, going on at that point plus cost. Right. That gets real expensive real fast. So I, you know, yes, I think more could happen um and you know for every con- last thing I'll say is for every conference commission we're all just keeping our, our eye on it. I mean, we're not doing our jobs if we're not monor- monitoring these changes, trying to, you know, think through what are the nuances there and importantly what it would mean for our group of schools. Val Ackerman, the commissioner of the Big East Conference. I feel like we could talk for hours. You are a wealth of uh, history and information. And I just appreciate you making the time to join me on Sports Business Radio. Continued success to you. Great. Thanks, Brian. Happy New Year to you. And um, look forward to having another conversation with you in the future. Thanks, Val. Take care. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy the fastest growing fantasy app ever released and the official gaming partner of Sports Business Radio. And with early investors like Mark Cuban, Kevin Durant, Adam Schefter, and Jared Goff, I know that underdog fantasy is made for people like me who are on the go and want something quick, easy, and fun to play. And today we've got a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. If you sign up to underdog fantasy using the promo code SBR, they're going to double your first deposit up to $100. No risk, no long-term commitment. Just sign up using promo code SBR and your first deposit is matched up to $100 for free. I already play Underdog Fantasy on the Underdog Fantasy app, but if I didn't, I'd use that free $100 and go for a pick'em contest where I can bet the over-under on individual players or team matchups. Or maybe the Best Ball Mania 3 contest worth $10 million in total prizes. All you have to do is draft a team for the season. No waivers, no lineups, no injury reports. Underdog Fantasy takes care of all of that for you. So do what I've been doing. Go to Underdog Fantasy, download the app, sign up with promo code SBR, and get started right away with a free match on your first deposit up to $100. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our team at Sports Business Radio. Brian Griggs, Josh Blank. Ryan Nakajima, and our friends at CG Sports who power Sports Business Radio, CG Young, Matt Amerlin, Nicole Wardle, and Calvin Wirtz. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions. GriggsProductions.com.